Well, that song we just heard from Eli and Kyle makes a fantastic introduction to this scripture, uh, but I'll do my best to elaborate. This uh, text that you're about to hear is the story of the Good Samaritan, a familiar, well-worn text. Now, I might have gone a very different direction in reading and interpreting it this morning. You see, the Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jews. They both share similar origins, but the Samaritans believed that Israel went astray after the Babylonian captivity, while they, the Samaritans, continue to practice the true faith. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And yet, here in this story, the Samaritan is the good guy. And so I might have used this text to preach a sermon about how the so-called bad guys aren't always so bad, and we ought to give them the benefit of the doubt. But as you know, if you've been paying any attention, I've already preached that sermon a dozen times. Love your enemies, don't demonize people you disagree with, don't give in to hate, and so on and so forth. And of course, I still believe all of those things very deeply. But there are other characters in this story besides the Samaritan that we have to contend with, and most of them are not very friendly. There's the man who gets assaulted, sure, but there are also his assailants, the gang of bandits who rob him and leave him for dead. There are the priests, the holy men, who ignore him while he's bleeding in the gutter. And there's also the guy that Jesus is telling this story to, a lawyer who is not as innocent as he seems. Lots of characters in this text, and most of them are what you might call bad guys. Ill-intentioned, misguided, if not outright villains. And regardless of whether they're really all that bad deep down, this text confronts us with the fact that sometimes people do terrible things to each other. People get hurt. And that's when the good guys, even if we're not perfect or even all that good, need to stick together. A reading from Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near to him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. 
he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting and merciful God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A gigantic troll, as big as a house, hoists a massive boulder over its head. The wreckage of a bright yellow Ford Focus is parked at its feet, its roof caved in by the troll's merciless assault. What the heck? exclaims my son, Levi, from the back seat of the car. Look at the monster, Daddy! Look at the car! He smashed it! He's, 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 he's the bad guy! He has a tendency to stutter when he gets very excited. We were at the Morton Arboretum, of course, driving by the gigantic statue made from reclaimed wood that stands watched near the main parking lot. Rocky, as the Colossus with the boulder is aptly named, is just one of six trolls that are hidden throughout the park. An impressive exhibit from Danish artist Thomas Dambo. Hunting down these trolls is a great excuse to explore the Arboretum with your kids because you can't see most of them from the road. They're scattered across seven miles of wilderness and you have to get out of your car and explore in order to find them all. I confess that we've only found two, um, including the one in the main parking lot. Uh, it was very hot outside, you know. I, uh, the other one we saw was a creature that had apparently tripped and fallen on its face in a woodland clearing, the basket that it was carrying fallen several yards away. I really intended to find the rest with Levi to come back on a day that was a little more temperate, um, but his initial excitement gave way to apathy and he sort of lost interest in the hunt. But I still want to see them. I still want to find them all. Trolls are fascinating creatures, the stuff of ancient Norse folklore, mysterious beings that are generally regarded with a healthy dose of suspicion. They were said to live in isolated communities among the mountain caves where they laid traps and sometimes eight travelers unfortunate enough to encounter them. When Christianity swept across Scandinavia and the question arose of baptizing other races and animals, trolls didn't even make the short list. They were unworthy candidates for baptism, allegedly incapable of living a Christian life. There's a fragment of Norse poetry that survived the ages in which 
One of these creatures encounters a traveling bard and introduces herself. And translated, it reads thus. They call me a troll, moon of the earth Hrungir, wealth sucker of the giant, destroyer of the storm sun, beloved follower of the Cirrus, guardian of the corpse fjords, swallower of the wheel of heaven. What is a troll if not that? What indeed? is a troll if not that. Well, I would attest that a troll is many things besides and none of them good. And unlike the statues at the Arboretum, you don't have to look very hard to find them. In our 21st century nomenclature, the word troll has vastly different connotations. Like so many things of our time, it was born on the internet. That's what they call people who drift into message boards like Reddit or social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram and leave inflammatory messages with the intention of getting a rise out of somebody. Now in the early days of the so-called information superhighway, trolling was a lot more innocent. Someone might wander into a Chicago Bulls chat room and call Michael Jordan a chump and then log off before anyone could respond. Ha ha, very funny. It was the dial-up modem equivalent of a prank call. But nowadays, trolling can feel a lot more predatory. It's also more organized. Troll farms, as they're called, are run by governments who actually hire people to spread disinformation and sow discord in online communities, sometimes in the hope of influencing elections. So-called copyright trolls extort their victims for minor licensing infringements under the guise of a legitimate law firm. They set traps for people to fall into. Not so different, maybe, than the troll in the mountains who preys on careless travelers. That's what trolls do. They go out of their way to lure people into harm. Levi would call them the bad guys. And while I don't really like to call anyone bad, they are certainly a problem. Dishonest politicians, predatory lenders, hateful preachers, criminal hackers, and unscrupulous lawyers can hurt people without ever laying a finger on them. Now, I haven't got anything against lawyers. There are too many lawyers in this congregation for me to have anything against lawyers. I'm looking out, I see at least four lawyers here, and there aren't even that many people here today. Uh, and really, most of the folks that I've met in the legal profession have a lot of integrity. In fact, I'm proud to say that we have an attorney right here in our congregation who specializes in defending folks from copyright trolls. But that said, you'll have to allow me just one lawyer joke. <laughs> Did you hear the one about the young couple who died um, before they could be married? Very sad. They went to heaven, though, and uh, they asked St. Peter to find someone who could marry them up in heaven. Weeks passed and then months and finally St. Peter made the arrangements. But then before too long the newlyweds found that things weren't working out and decided to get a divorce. Again they went to St. Peter. You've got to be kidding me, he says. It took me six months to find a minister up here. You know how long it's going to take me to find a lawyer? <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. But given the scripture, I couldn't resist. 
You see, this text about the Good Samaritan is actually about another man as well, a lawyer, uh, who Jesus meets in a synagogue in a small village on his way to Jerusalem. A man who, in the modern sense of the word, is actually a little bit of a troll. In the context of the story, a lawyer would have been an expert in Jewish law, a Pharisee or a scribe, one of those people who frequently debated with Jesus and continually tried uh, to bait him and lure him into saying something incriminating. Now, while most of these encounters happen in Jerusalem, just before his death, this small-town lawyer is no different. Before Jesus gets into the well-known story about the Samaritan, we're told that the guy questions Jesus in order to test him. And then about halfway through, he also uh, asks Jesus, who is my neighbor, it says, in order to justify himself. These are little hints that this man may have an ulterior agenda. While he seems friendly enough, they establish his real motive. What if this lawyer, this scribe, whatever you want to call him, is actually trolling Jesus, baiting him, setting a trap for him to walk into, just like the religious authorities in Jerusalem would try to do over and over again. You see, this story is like the Wizard of Oz, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. These characters represent real people. The Pharisees and the scribes, including this lawyer, they're like the bandits who lured Jesus into a trap. The Sadducees and the priests are the holy men who pass him by, turning a blind eye to his suffering. And the traveler in the ditch, maybe that's Jesus. And maybe he needs our help. I've recently uh, gotten around to reading Upton Sinclair's 1906 novel, The Jungle, a book about poor working conditions in the Chicago meatpacking industry at the turn of the century. Uh, while the book got a lot of attention at the time for its stomach-churning depictions of the industry itself and ultimately led to the establishment of the FDA, Sinclair's real focus was worker exploitation. I aimed for the public's heart, he famously said, but I accidentally hit it in the stomach. The book follows an immigrant family from Lithuania who settle in the back of the yards neighborhood in Chicago, and it depicts all of the ways in which they are mercilessly taken advantage of. As soon as they step off the train, they're shaken down by police who charge them a ludicrous fine for standing on the street. They work for pennies in dangerous, unsanitary conditions. They're sold a house by a bogus real estate broker that conveniently forgets to mention the interest that they're going to owe every month. They're lured into one trap after another. And even once they come to realize that everything around them is a fraudulent scam, they're helpless to do anything about it. How could they know, Sinclair writes, that the pale blue milk that they bought around the corner was watered and doctored with formaldehyde besides? When the children were not well in Lithuania, their mother would gather herbs and cure them. Now, she was obliged to go to the drugstore and buy extracts. And how was she to know that they were all adulterated? How could they find out that their tea and coffee, their sugar and flour had been doctored, that their canned peas had been colored with copper salts and their fruit jams with aniline dyes? 
And even if they had known it, what good would it have done them since there was no place within miles where any other sort was to be had? These may seem like small things, but it's a reminder that people take advantage of each other in subtle and yet terrible ways. And when I see exploited workers or people litigated for everything they own or scammed out of their savings or sold a false bill of goods or taken for a ride by the very institutions that are supposed to protect them, I can't help but see a man in a ditch, a man in the gutter, Jesus, a merciful man who never received much mercy himself. Even Christianity, sadly, is not always merciful. We've all heard the horror stories of clerical abuse, mostly involving children. We've all heard about the Westboro Baptist Church, the far right-wing group out of Kansas that travels the country to troll people at funerals, military funerals mostly, waving signs about gay people going to hell. Although you may not know uh, that their founder, Fred Phelps, was also an attorney, and 11 of his 13 children are practicing lawyers. In other words, the Westboro Baptist Church is really a litigation firm. They show up at these funerals and spew hatred until their civil rights are violated when asked to leave or told not to show up or sued for emotional damages. And then they sue or they countersue, and they usually win walking away with tens of thousands of dollars or more. It's a racket. In at least one instance, the family of a fallen soldier ended up having to pay them, the church, after they picketed his funeral. Again, I have nothing against lawyers for that, or preachers for that matter. But to quote that creature from Norse folklore, what is a troll if not that? Now, there have been some similar demonstrations happening right in our own backyard, albeit on a much smaller scale. And while I would not call these people trolls, per se, or any other names, uh, so much as radically misinformed citizens, I do think their actions are harmful to some of the most vulnerable people in our community. As many of you know, folks from this church have been supporting a local group called Glenbard Voices for Equity. This is a grassroots movement to create more inclusive policies for transgender and gender nonconforming students at Glenbard West High School. You know, policies about bathroom use and locker rooms and overnight retreats, and the kind of things we need to be thinking about once we admit that the student body is not comprised solely of cisgendered, straight, heterosexual teenagers. Several other local districts have already put more progressive policies in place. And uh, just about a week ago, uh, Governor Pritzker rolled out a plan to make inclusive policies and procedures the norm across the state. And as our world continues to grow and change, this is really important forward-thinking work, things we need to be considering. But as you can imagine, there's lots of opposition to this kind of change. This opposition is mostly comprised of genuinely concerned parents, which is why I don't want to call them trolls or, or demonize them. But as I said, I think they are misinformed. I think they're confused. 
Their arguments are laced with biblical claims about creation and thinly veiled prejudice against LGBTQ students, offering, often referring to them as gender confused or accusing them of trying to sneak into the girls' locker room a la Revenge of the Nerds. Why should we put the majority of our students at risk, they argue, as if these LGBTQ students were a threat. Why should we put the majority of our students at risk for a handful of students who can't decide if they're boys or girls? I don't think the people who think this way are bad people, but I think they're hurting our most vulnerable population of students. The population that is the most bullied, the population that has the highest risk of suicide and depression. And this opposition party, they've gotten very organized, letters, petitions, the whole nine yards. There's actually a school board meeting tomorrow night at six o'clock right across the street where they plan to show up en masse and overwhelm the school board, attempting to overturn the progressive policies that the board recently adopted. Maybe you'll consider joining me as we stand in solidarity with the kids in our community who just want to be treated like everyone else. Or maybe that's not your fight, and that's okay. But there's always someone lying in that ditch, and we can't keep on walking past them forever. I still haven't gotten around to finding all the trolls at the Arboretum, but it doesn't change the fact that they're out there waiting for someone to happen by. Sadly, there are a lot of people in this world who will try to take advantage of each other, lure them into a bad deal, exploit their workers, leave people in a proverbial ditch. But Jesus calls each of us to stick up for the person in the gutter, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. If you're a lawyer, you have an opportunity to ensure that all parties are treated fairly. If you're a business owner, you have the chance to make sure that your employees are well paid and well treated and not exploited. If you're a citizen, you have a right to vote your conscience. And if you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to care for whoever has a need. For as Jesus also once said, whatever you have done to the least of these, you have also done to me. Amen.